Repeat concussion, traumatic encephalopathy, head injury, brain damage. These are really hot topics now, especially in the world of contact sports. And there has been recent considerable awareness and a lot of publicity about the long-term effects of repeat head injury. Yet our modern understanding may not be that different from what we already knew in the 1950s. I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal, and today I'm talking with Dr. Stephen Casper, Associate Professor of History, Humanities and Social Science at Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York. His research focuses on the social history of medicine. Dr. Casper wrote an article published in CMAJ about a period in history that shaped our understanding of traumatic encephalopathy. I'm in Haute Savoie in France, and I've reached Stephen in Potsdam, New York, to discuss this article. Welcome, Stephen. Hello. Well, Stephen, tell us a little bit about yourself and your particular field of work. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to be here, and as uh, you said, I'm a historian of science and medicine, and uh, for about uh, 12 years I've been researching and writing on the history of the mind and brain sciences. And uh, my scholarship broadly focuses on the social history of neurology and psychiatry, as well as neurological patients and history and disturbances of consciousness. And I'm currently writing a book on the history of concussion, which I've tentatively called Punch Drunk and Dementia, A History of Concussion, 1870 to 2012. Well, we're going back in history from a long time, but why, why did you feel it was important to write about this topic at this particular point in time? Well, my article attempts to trace uh, briefly an intellectual concept, traumatic encephalopathy, from its formulation in the 1920s to its full elaboration um, in the 1950s. And what I have been doing in my work is I've been trying to follow a range of individuals working in medicine, neurology, physiology, even engineering, I think, in a sense, what I was trying to do was, was in this little article, uh, capture the weight of past knowledge on these issues, because I think it's important to see how much our ancestors knew and how well-equipped they were, actually, to think about uh, traumatic head injury. One of the interesting things now is that head injury is a big, big, big issue in sports, but looking back, it seems that there was a considerable interest in head injuries in occupational health and in the military. Did these areas come together at all? Absolutely. When you survey uh, this history, it's not uncommon to find somebody reflecting on injuries in sports at uh, conferences or in papers that are focusing on, for example, veterans just out of the Great War or uh, some other you know, major context like that. And often the figures who became experts on, on head injury, particularly after the First World War, um, would find themselves in a variety of settings uh, talking about these issues ranging from occupational health uh, to medical jurisprudence and uh, even uh, actually to the design of uh, um, uh, helmets for in, to protect against like motor vehicle accidents and, and on motorcycles. And there's actually some interesting little overlaps. Like, for example, uh, the military authorities during the First World War, uh, for example, really viewed training in boxing, and we're talking in multiple nations in that period, as a way of sort of building in courage among the fighting men. And so 
Um, then, of course, because they were training the men in boxing, boxing became much more popular. It was already a very popular sport after the Great War and before the Great War. And then uh, sometimes some of these men, while they were training, were getting hurt. And then that was raising the question about uh, the way in which blows sustained during boxing matches were leading to problems among enlisted men or officers. And so these convergences can be found um, throughout the record after about 1918 uh, into the 1950s. You mentioned a meeting that will be of particular interest to our listeners here in Canada, and that's the meeting of the Canadian Neurological Society when one of the, a professor of neurology from the University of Montreal, Jean Saussier, he seemed to have been a pivotal person in this discussion. Tell us a little bit about, about Jean Saussier and what his thoughts were way back in the 50s. Well, unfortunately, I haven't been able to discover a lot about him biographically beyond the fact you've already mentioned. The article itself is uh, that he pens in 1955 is absolutely a, a classic statement. And um, in short, the, the article is a literature review that is framed as a lecture. And he's attempting to summarize what's known about um, concussion and uh, the, the causal sequences that come after it. And he's also um, trying to explain why, as he puts it, it's a misnomer. And he touches on several authors who have uh, struggled with colloquial meanings as well as um, medical meanings. And he says, you know, when, when we look at all of this together, what seems to be very clear is that we're looking at a, at a diffuse head injury phenomenon, and he suggests, um, not uniquely, because others before him have suggested this, but he says it's just best if we call this a single syndromic uh, entity called traumatic encephalopathy. And like I said, he, he's, he's building at that point on a fairly established uh, tradition of particularly neurologists and neurosurgeons suggesting that these symptoms should be called that. But what I think is really significant and fascinating about the article is the way he he pulls it all together and produces this really distinctive statement. And so it, it, the article just strikes me every time uh, I, I read it as um, a remarkable synthesis. And yet simultaneously, it's, it's, it has a very different texture and tone than we might uh, now expect for research review articles of this kind. The neurologists at this time, it sounds as though they were really struggling to know what was going on. They knew there was some problem, but of course they didn't have the benefit of uh, the technology that we have with MRI scans, CT scans, etc. What did they understand was happening, do you think, with head injury at that time? Well, that that's really that question really characterizes the, the. I mean, there's an extensive literature published between really uh, the period after World War One up until the point when Saussure's article is brought out, and so that question really characterizes the the wide ranging research problem that lots of authorities and lots of fields are beginning to investigate. And the electroencephalography is just being introduced, so you start to see EEG studies showing up. You have experimental physiology. Uh, studies taking place using um, uh, usually mice or monkey models, but there are also rat models. Um, you see people uh, attempting to do large retrospective case studies, looking at sometimes thousands of case records, trying to to glean from these records whether 
clinical uh, experiences of single or repeated head injuries can be tracked to later uh, appearances of patients with degenerative conditions. Um, and then, of course, you have, you have case studies of classic case studies of individuals who, for example, participated in boxing. Now, all of this literature, um, these authors seem to be reading each other, they're citing each other. They, they seem, moreover, not to be as siloed as we are today. And so prior to the 1940s, the, the view that is emerging is that um, somehow or other, the impulse to the head produces uh, either um, a, a lesion or uh, some people talk about uh, patechial hemorrhages as a, as a sort of after effect consequence or some other diffuse strain um, that produces then the, the clinical symptoms. And uh, right around 1943, um, these symptoms begin to be understood in biophysical terms. There's a very famous uh, paper published in The Lancet uh, by uh, a physicist named A.H.S. Holborn who writes this classic article called The Mechanism of Head Injury. And what happens after Holborn publishes his study pretty rapidly is people begin to take up a shear strain model of what is happening in these cases of, of diffuse um, head injury. And in taking up that model, a lot of the different elements that have been observed pathologically and functionally, that is in, in physiological uh, terms, begin to make sense. And so the the picture that emerges by the 1950s is of uh, a causal event, the blow to the head, resulting in some uh, sort of transformation at the level of the tissues, which may or may not result um, in lesions, but can result in a functional disturbance. And then the clinical signs of concussion, which had been classically described back I mean, long, many, many centuries at this point, are then understood in terms of those um, physical and physiological uh, changes. You, you've talked there about what we understand now about the mechanism of head injury, but can I take you back a little bit to the early part of the 20th century when we didn't have that more detailed scientific understanding and uh, an outbreak of encephalitis lethargica, which, which we don't recognize really anymore, but this was a condition that people began to think about in the context of, of um, head injury as well. Perhaps you'd tell us a little bit about that, Stephen. It's a, an absolutely fascinating story in the history of neurology and, and the history of medicine and public health. And it's also a very uh, now to us confusing and, and controversial story. Um, in, in sort of general detail, um, the influenza pandemic of 1918 seems to be associated with uh, another creeping uh, epidemic, which is called epidemic uh, encephalitis by neurologists um, in Britain and the United States. And a synonym that accompanies uh, epidemic encephalitis um, is, is encephalitis lethargica. And so these two, um, these two terms are used interchangeably. But encephalitis lethargica describes the, the symptoms, whereas epidemic encephalitis disturbs the public health threat that was assumed to, to follow from the contagiousness of, the, of this condition. These individuals were characterized often by extreme lethargy uh, or also extreme insomnia, and that divergence in their, their clinical symptoms 
um, uh, created, as you can imagine, a great deal of debate about whether these entities were even the same in the in the early 1920s. Now, um, what neurologists and neurosurgeons, particularly, and pathologists, however, take away from these conditions, and this is the important link to our story, is that it it is absolutely demonstrable that these symptoms are neurological and reflect some kind of change that has taken place at the level of the brain tissues. And now this was an important demonstration because by the close of World War I, many of these scientists and clinicians feel themselves under attack from analytically minded psychiatrists and psychoanalysts and, and others who, who are trying to promulgate um, visions of psychiatry and psychology that do not require a, an organic basis. Encephalitis lethargica emerges then as a, as a clinical illness that very clearly demonstrates that sometimes when the brain is actually directly influenced by a disease element, the um, symptoms that are produced are, are cognitive and they're clearly associated. And, and so it, it, it became a significant um, sort of rebuttal to um, an overarching analytically minded psychology that didn't want to think uh, most of the time in biological terms. Intriguingly, what, what happens then is these neurologists, um, particularly uh, Michael Osnato and Vincent Gilliberti, uh, who are contending with this psychoanalytic tradition, particularly in New York City, they argue by analogy that if uh, these symptoms of encephalitis that are coming about in this epidemic can, um, can, can be traced to lesions in the brain. It follows that lesions in, uh, to the brain in, received from other contexts might also produce similar uh, degenerative processes and, uh, and the symptoms also of concussion. And, and so uh, they argue in, a, in some classic papers written between 1925 and 1930. And just a kind of uh, orienting fact Encephalitis lethargica patients have been with us culturally for quite a long time. Um, Oliver Sacks, in his uh, probably uh, landmark and, and first major work, Awakenings, characterized those patients, sort of long-term sufferers, who were still uh, hospitalized even in the, the 1960s. And as you may recall, that was eventually turned into a feature film starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. So, um, even though it's not as recognizable clinically today, it, there, there's still a, a cultural legacy there uh, for these patients. It's 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 actually a totally fascinating story. It, it re it's absolutely gripping. And I mean, what I found really interesting was the tension between the psychiatrists and the neurologists. And even bringing this up to the current day, when you now have the integration of, of psychiatry and neurology and the understanding of head injury, so there have been a number of key points along this story. Maybe you'd just tell us a little bit about what you think were the key moments in this evolution. I have um, gone back to the, the late 19th century. So, I mean, uh, this very famous asylum uh, pathologist, neurologist, the founder of Brain, James Crichton Brown, already in the 1860s and early 1870s, is able to write 
very detailed uh, clinical research reviews of all that can be known about cranial injuries. He even talks uh, in one of those papers that he wrote, I think it's in 1870 in the West Riding Hood, reports of the Lunatic Asylum, that uh, repeated head injuries cause the most mischief. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Uh, I, I said earlier that we have to think about the weight of what our ancestors knew. It's, it's remarkable how much experimental work and uh, clinical observation uh, had already been made and it, written down extensively by the mid-1890s. But there are very clear benchmarks in the 20th century um, the one that I think today many people refer to that, that is the sort of classic study is Harrison Martland's 1928 characterization of the punch drunk syndrome, which is um, a, a classic pathological description of the development of Parkinsonian-like uh, symptoms and uh, the associated brain changes. Now that appears in the Journal of the American Medical Association, and and um, it's sort of the the classic description of chronic traumatic encephalopathy. And also because of the way I think um, boxing itself had such enormous presence in, in I mean, really not, not just American society, but, but sort of worldwide. I think that that paper develops uh, a, a particular presence that, that is almost unavoidable uh, in this story. But there are uh, a lot of authorities, uh, many of them uh, in their own right, uh, extremely important figures. And so you find uh, studies published by uh, figures like Charles Simons, uh, William Ritchie Russell, already in 1928, 1930, 1932, uh, that are classic statements that, that are often working on hospital populations. And, and these statements are, are looking at usually uh, patients and patient outcomes from uh, sometimes just single head injuries. Um, in the 1940s, I've already mentioned, there's, a, there's this classic paper published by this physicist at Oxford who is at that time working with, um, I think, it's, it's not entirely clear, but he seems to be working with a group of figures who are, are dedicated to studying head injuries and brain injuries and spinal injuries at Oxford because of um, the ongoing war um, and, and the urgency then that these cases present. And uh, this physicist, A.H.S. Uh, Holborn, uh, publishes the biophysical definition of the mechanism of head injury. And that goes on to become, I think, the way um, subsequently all of the definitions that are formulated you know, tend, that tends to be the track that they follow to think about it in biomechanical and physical terms. Um, McDonald Critchley publishes a paper in 19, I think it's 1957, which he notes the um, characteristic uh, tangle pathology. Um, at that point, the molecular biology revolution isn't advanced enough that they can talk about this is a tau uh, protein. Um, I, I think it, tau itself is only discovered in the, the 1970s. But the tangle pathology is very clear. And he's not the only one who, who notices it. There's um, a group of uh, German uh, physicians who publish on uh, that same finding in um, the 1954. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of papers. Pro probably one other one that bears mentioning is a, a paper um, on the cumulative effects of concussion that was published in 1975 by uh, a, a neurosurgeon and a neuropsychiatrist 
in New Zealand to Grunewald and Wrightson. That paper is a classic because it it uh, delineates the the uh, cumulative effects on particularly um, intellectual functioning from sustaining multiple blows. And they're quite strident in the conclusions that they derive from this fact. They sort of encourage sporting authorities to begin, medical professionals who are advising sporting authorities to, to warn sporting authorities that these injuries are cumulative and that they're dangerous. And um, I mean, it's clear that Grunewald and Wrightson are responding to this longer pathophysiological and biomechanical literature that I've been describing that, ex- that existed prior to the time they wrote that paper. I could go on and on about this, but uh, th- those are the real touchstones. What bothers me, Stephen, listening to what you describe is the, the huge weight of knowledge about head injuries that's been there for some considerable time. Uh, you know, medical profession seems to have been aware of this for a long time, and yet there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect with sport. In fact, one of my interests is in sport and sports medicine, and the sports medicine community themselves seem struggling with this issue and what should they do. Boxing has been the highlight, but there are so many other sports that have made headlines, American football recently, hockey or ice hockey. Uh, and in, in Europe, uh, rugby has grappling with this problem. Where do you think the problem is? Why why has the message not seemed to have got across? Well, I, I want to be really careful, I suppose, in accepting the premise of this question because I I don't believe the athletes themselves necessarily should know. And I think what we have to do, right, is we have to sort of step back from um the, the 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 sort of dichotomy that we see here between medical opinion and and the weight of medical authority on these issues and um uh sort of individual responsibility to think about the way so much of what is happening is occurring in a, in a cultural context that really elevates athleticism and sports um and 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 celebrates athleticism and sports and and I think, right, the, the athletes themselves, they're living in this culture where um, the, the denial of the, the violence that is occurring sometimes in these contact sports, um, it places them in a position where um, they might hear medical opinions and yet simultaneously um, see and experience all of these other pressures that are coming uh, from outside and within these industries, and they're, and they're by the way not the only way we can we can view these things. I mean, I'm I'm really interested in other populations actually who um, are not sort of being described in this large cultural conversation that we're having about athletic injuries. So, I'm really interested in domestic violence victims. I'm interested in uh, in prisoners, um, in in uh, you know pe- people who are incarcerated because. There are right, other populations of um, actually very clearly sometimes marginalized individuals who are being sort of sidelined. And part of it, I would, I would guess I would like to see more thought uh, put into looking at these other, these other individuals, in, in part just because I think right, that the, the focus on contact sports itself um, sort of distracts us from the way the history of um, medicine here has been thinking about these injuries in general. I mean, 
one of the things that really stands out that, about Marlin's paper is that, that Marlin is clearly working within a tradition that are trying to understand what head injuries are in general and how they work in general. And boxers emerge then as a sort of exemplary case for investigating this very general question. And that seems to have somehow become reversed by about the 1990s where contact sports players are concerned. It's almost like we've decided to specifically investigate these conditions as they apply to contact sports. And even there, it's sort of curious because, right, women uh, who play contact sports do not sort of emerge with the same uh, gravity of uh, and attention over the same period. And, and sports that are not manifestly obvious uh, contact sports cheerleading comes to mind, synchronized swimming comes to mind. You know, these sports all become viewed, right, uh, not as places where these injuries can occur uh, also. And and that disturbs me. I mean, that that worries me. Um, But I I think, to come back to the the heart of your question, right, what we're struggling with here is um, the way in which our culture is conceptualizing these injuries, but the weight of medical opinion to me seems very clear, and it seems to have been historically clear. So we're going to have to, I think, think very hard about um, the way our culture responds to these matters and the way our culture sends signals to people who are at risk from uh, repeated exposure to head trauma. So let, let me leave you with one final question, and that is many of our listeners will say, Should we let our children play sports like hockey, football, rugby football? What's your take on this? It's a question that is so complicated. And um, what I think I would say is that we have to think very hard about the signals that our culture um, is sending to our coaches uh, to our kids and uh, to us as parents. What we have to do is we have to make sure that we're not sending our kids hyper-masculinized lessons. Um, we need to have uh, a lot of thought put into the way we're introducing coercive signals in environments that confuse our kids and and some of those signals, right, might say, well, we're really concerned about concussion, but you have to win. Or you, we're really concerned about head injuries, but you have to get that college scholarship. And that, I think, is where this uh, all gets very muddled. And, and so what I would say, right, is think hard about it. And whatever you decide to do, be clear-headed about the risks and then judge accordingly. You know, it, the... A uh, great sports physician, Augustus Thorndike, in 19, I think it was 1956, said three concussions uh, is enough to warrant never playing a sport again. That seems to me, uh, you know, it's, it's, it may be an arbitrary number in the judgment of some people, but the implicit warning in there seems to me to be a very good one, which is that we have to have... Uh, the confidence to say at a certain point that the the risk is beginning to outweigh the benefit. 
I, you know, I, I go over this a lot. I have a two-year-old son, and I, I wonder uh, very much uh, if he starts to show interest in these sports, uh, what I'll tell him. But it's, it's a complicated question. What's your take on on that question? Uh, you know, I'll be honest with you. I really, really struggle with it because I can see the huge social benefits of sport, the character building, all those ideas, but there are significant risks. I, I think there are major problems with the way uh, sport is played at the moment. One of the problems is that, for example, I, I know more about rugby football than the North American sports. Well, one of the problems is rugby football has become professionalized. And the, there is so much money involved in it that they don't want to tamper with the sport. Uh, it's no longer a contact sport. It's a collision sport. And if they were to reduce the number of players on the pitch and change the way the game is played, it would become more of a contact sport rather than a collision sport. I mean, I just, I, I think one of the, the just observations I'd make, I, I mean, I've been really surprised when I read the consensus statements that have been published over the years that there hasn't been any focus at all put on mitigating the coercive environments. Because, like, I mean, you just take, for example, NCAA sports in the United States. Now, these, these college athletes, they have scholarships on the line. Their tuition at these universities is predicated on being, you know, a successful athlete. And if they get injured, those scholarships can be taken away from them. I mean, there are actually things we can do to mitigate that. And so people don't have to... You know, if people don't have to fear so much the consequences of being thought to have had a concussion uh, and of being removed, I mean, you know, it might actually help the sports become safer. The problem so, is yeah. everybody is conflicted. That the athlete is conflicted in that their their income depends on being on the pitch. The management are conflicted because they're looking for results. The doctors are conflicted because the reality is, as soon as they speak out or say anything that is um, not in keeping with the team plan, they'll be replaced. Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's still things at the, the collegiate level, at the least, that we that we could do. And it's like everyone's just uh, sort of paralyzed about it. And so I just feel that, that there needs to be some wiser identification of that particular problem. Well, Stephen, th thank you very much for giving us your reflection as an expert and, of course, as a parent. It's been a pleasure to talk to you, Stephen. The pleasure was mine as well. I've been speaking with Dr. Stephen Casper, Associate Professor of History, Humanities and Social Science at Clarkson University in Potsdam, New York. To read the Humanities article he authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, or whatever else you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, we invite you to listen to our many other past episodes. I'm Donald McCauley, Associate Editor for CMAJ, and thank you for joining us today and for listening to this podcast.